There is a great disturbance in the Force. I have felt it. All aboard! Ha ha ha! Stow your luggage and take your seats. Settle in for the ride in these funky beats. We're gonna see things you've never seen before. Market dynamics we can't ignore. Uncharted tracks we gotta explore. Long bonds are broken. That's gonna leave a mark across every asset class. We're riding in the dark when T-bill yields are riskier than stocks. How's that gonna work? Are we in for a shock? Are we about to get mauled by a sleuth of bears? Or are we all in cash? Maybe nobody cares. Maybe U.S. bonds are not what they were. Things change so fast it's all a blur. Once a superpower with irresistible debt, now a country overspent. Too risky a bet. Too divided to even pass a budget. No speaker in the house. Compromise. Forget it. Old systems are broken. Old paradigms are a mess. We gotta put it back together on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and history in the making, fellow passengers. Long-term U.S. Treasury prices have plummeted to historic levels, driving yields to levels we haven't seen since 2007, right as the great financial crisis was gathering steam. Long-term treasuries with durations of 20 years or more have fallen 51% from all-time highs set in August of 2020. That's almost as big a plunge as the 57% S&P 500 nosedive during the great financial crisis, but more than the 49% dot-com bubble popping in 1999. The rolling 10-year performance of the 30-year U.S. Treasury is now negative on a total return basis. As Sentiment Trader puts it, it's been a lost decade for U.S. Treasuries. And that's not supposed to happen. That's not the way Alexander Hamilton drew it up when he helped create the first U.S. Treasury bonds. They're supposed to be stable. They're supposed to be valuable. They are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, and that used to mean something. The tumble in U.S. Treasury prices comes with all kinds of knock-on effects, and we'll unpack those in a minute. But we gotta talk about last Friday and that blowout jobs report. U.S. employers added 336,000 jobs in September, nearly twice what was expected, and the unemployment rate stayed steady at 3.8%. Not only that, job gains for July and August were revised higher by around 120,000 jobs. How did that happen? We thought employers were bracing for a recession after all those rate hikes, and there are multiple strikes happening across the auto, entertainment, and healthcare sectors. Think again, because the job gains were widespread across industries, from leisure and hospitality, which added 96,000 jobs. That sector, by the way, has now fully recovered all the jobs lost during the pandemic. 73,000 government jobs were added, including state government education. That's the back-to-school effect. Healthcare added 41,000, and the professional scientific and technical sector added 29,000 jobs to the payrolls. Now, to be sure, the Labor Department takes its non-farm payroll survey in the first two weeks of every month, so maybe the September report missed a lot of the labor unrest in the second half of the month. But even by the numbers, last month's job gains were surprising. There were over 47,000 layoffs last month, but still, 336,000 job gains would be a blowout number in any month. And another sign that the Fed's rate hikes are not having as big an effect on the labor market as the central bank was hoping for. You'd think the stock market would have hated this news. You'd think that the expectations for an additional rate hike would have skyrocketed. You'd think that Treasury bond yields would have spiked even more on that news. And if you thought all of those things, like me, you'd be wrong. After a brief sell-off in stocks that would have capped another consecutive week of selling, investors changed their tune and started buying, and buying big. The Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 all spiked through the afternoon on Friday as investors took another look at the numbers. 
Wage gains, a key focus for the Fed, which has been trying to slow those down, continued to slow down, rising just 0.2% on the month, lower than expectations. And while job gains were way higher than expected, a lot of them may have been seasonal, the old back-to-school, back-to-work swing we usually see at the end of the summer. And maybe, just maybe, companies are less dour about the state of the economy and the consumer than investors are. They still see demand, and they don't want to get caught understaffed going into the holiday spending season. Or maybe sellers just got tired. Friday's rally helped the S&P 500 finish the week half a percent higher. The Dow Industrials climbed 0.3% on the week and the Nasdaq popped 1.6%. But it's the bond market we need to keep our eyes on. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. What's going on with those spiking long-term bond yields? We spent the first nine months of the year worrying about the inverted yield curve because short-term government bond yields, those three-month to two-year treasuries, were much higher than long-term bond yields, usually a calling card for a recession. Those 14 interest rate hikes by the Fed to cool inflation had a lot to do with that. But this sudden flip, or bear steepener as it's called, may be the clearest signal we've seen yet that the U.S. government debt is losing its luster and its groove, and maybe there's just too much of it out there, and our government keeps piling it on. The U.S. Treasury issued more debt during the third quarter of 2023 than any other quarter since 2020 when we were in COVID panic mode. The Federal Reserve has also been a seller of government bonds since it began its quantitative tightening campaign in March of 2022, and the traditional big buyers of U.S. Treasuries, China and Japan, are less interested in owning it. They cut their purchases over the years, especially the Bank of Japan, and China has been moving away from dollar-denominated assets. All that talk about the BRICS countries moving away from the U.S. dollar may be more than just talk. Number two. Why does this matter? Well, to put it in perspective, around $25 trillion of treasuries underpins the global banking system and the reserve status of the U.S. dollar. The treasury market, particularly the 10-year U.S. treasury, is the basis for most borrowing costs for companies and households, including mortgage rates and the interest on auto and credit card loans. We've seen what's happened to the housing market in the past 18 months. It's frozen as that 30-year mortgage rate has climbed to close to 8%. Credit card balances are at a record high due to those 21% APRs and our relentless spending. And most of the stock market has been under pressure since mid-August. Stocks are valued on their potential returns relative to treasury yields, the old equity risk premium. If stocks seem pricey, investors definitely have alternatives like treasuries. If they don't like treasuries, there's plenty of yield in the bank with CDs, money markets, and high-yield savings accounts offering more than 5%. And number three, what should you do about it? Well, that kind of depends on who you are. But let's assume for the purposes of this show that you are an educated investor who is heavy on stocks and contributes to your savings and retirement accounts on a pretty regular basis. You may be hearing that 1965 Martha and the Vandellas hit in your ears lately. As individual investors, we actually do have choices. We're not professional money managers or investors who are being judged on whether or not we're beating the benchmark every quarter. Here are just some of our options. Do nothing. Market swoons are not a bug. They are a feature of investing. They tend to revert to the mean over time. For the S&P 500, that means an average return of 10% a year going all the way back to 1928. It's done that despite an average intra-year drawdown of 16%. You can hope this trend will continue and do nothing to your portfolios. Doing nothing is actually a choice, and you are free to make it. Also, there's money in the bank. The flip side of high interest rates is high yields on banking products like CDs, money market accounts, and high yield savings accounts. 
Banks are finally offering more than 5% yields on these products, and investors have taken advantage of that all year long. More than $5.6 trillion has piled up in money markets and cash equivalents in the past 18 months, and investors have grown comfortable with a risk-free 5% on their money. There is somewhere to hide after all. And you can just keep buying, as our pal Nick Majuli says, dollar cost average your way into your favorite stocks and ETFs. If you have time on your side, sell us like the one we are going through are a great time to buy more of the assets you believe in at a discount. They may decline in value right after you buy them, but the point is to keep buying to accumulate sizable positions at lower prices. That will improve your returns if and when prices rise again. And if you believe that the past informs the present, prices will rise again. It's noisy and scary out there right now, I know, and investors are in deep fear mode. Sometimes, though, that's when things turn around for stocks. Is that what Friday was? Time will tell, but in the meantime, you do have choices. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and inflation is back on the menu with the release of the Producer Price Index on Wednesday, followed by the Consumer Price Index on Thursday. Consumer prices are projected to have risen 0.4% last month and 3.7% from a year ago, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy costs, also were likely up 0.4% from August and are up 4.2% year over year. Still higher than the Fed's 2% target rate, but it would mark the smallest annual increase since September of 2021. Also on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will release minutes from its latest Federal Open Market Committee meeting in September when it held rates steady, but indicated they would be higher for longer and one more rate hike this year is not out of the question. Third quarter earnings season kicks off this week, and a lot of investors are hoping that it'll be a catalyst to spark a fourth quarter rally for the stock market. Analysts have high hopes. They've raised earnings per share estimates higher for 10 of the 11 main groups in the S&P 500. Companies, though, not so much. Of the 116 S&P 500 companies issuing earnings guidance, 74 of them have put out negative guidance, while only 42 have issued positive guidance, according to research from FactSet. Let's see who's right. Widely held companies due to report this week include PepsiCo, Delta Airlines, J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, and Domino's Pizza, to name a few. We'll be paying close attention to those bank earnings, especially for what banks have to say about the impact of higher interest rates on their lending businesses and on their balance sheets. Amazon will try to fire up holiday sales this week, hosting its Prime Big Deal Days event for Prime members, which will take place in 19 countries, including the U.S., and it will run through Wednesday. This comes just three months after Amazon's Prime Days back in August, which were Amazon's most successful in its history. Are consumers still in the spending mood? We'll find out. And all eyes will be on Israel this week amid the devastating attacks by Hamas over the weekend and Israel's declaration of war. Pray for peace. Fear. It's that four-letter word that starts with F that we just don't like talking about, especially when it comes to money. We fear we won't have enough. We fear that we're falling behind. We fear losing it all. We fear asking for more. It follows us everywhere like a dark cloud, and it keeps us from being the we we want to be if we were free of fear. So how do we deal with fear, especially when it comes to money? Farnoosh Tarabi is one of our favorite financial experts, and she knows all about this. She's the host of the award-winning So Money podcast, the author of several books, including the brand new A Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. And she is our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Farnoosh. Well, thank you so much, Caleb. I love that you rhymed in that introduction. That oh. 
<laughs> Rhyming is what we do here on the Investopedia Express. If you haven't heard the intros, we do a little finance freestyle going on, unfortunately. It's so good to see you, my friend. So we nice. have known each other a long time. I was thinking about that on the way here as I got off the subway, as I took the New Jersey Transit to Penn Station and got off the subway. I go, I go miles for you. I do. You cross rivers and bridges. And <laughs> I think it was, at, it's at least 10 years, at yeah, least. At least. I, you and I go deep into the finance media history of New York City, and I'm so glad, and it's so good to see you, my friend. All right, your book is amazing. Just read through it this weekend. You talk about nine fears, but I really want to get into two of them that are really are at the core of our relationship to money. There's FOMO, which we talk about all the time, and investors, they know this one well. We're always hearing about someone making it rain who made the right investment at the right time. It's all over social media. It's all over financial news everywhere we look. Let's talk about FOMO and how it feels linked to that money and survival instinct mm -hmm. you write so well about. Right. So FOMO, I'm sure the cave people dealt with this, but it's very much a modern fear. And I think social media exacerbates it where you're stuck in this comparison culture. You're looking at what everyone else is doing. You're seeing what everyone's investing in. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need to invest in this stock or I need to buy that property. And it really cuts deep and it hits us really where it hurts, which is our sense of belonging, our sense of connection, our sense of like, I'm doing life right. And I've personally grappled with FOMO. And I think one of the wisdoms of FOMO, and, and this book is really my offering to people to say, you know, fear maybe deserves a rebrand. We've been treating fear as this uh, arch nemesis. And I think it deserves a little bit more street cred. I think that fear shows up for a reason. It is personal to us. It is often encouraging you to move inward and realize what are my values? Why am I feeling this way? With FOMO specifically, I think the framework is to, when it shows up and you feel it and you identify it, you think to yourself, okay, what's up with me? Why do I feel like there is this void? And what is something that I can do, and it's not necessarily this thing that everyone's doing over here, but something that I can do that is mine, that is very Caleb or very Farnoosh, that satisfies this feeling really that I am trying to fulfill. And I think that's healthy. I think it's fine to recognize in yourself that you feel like there's something missing, that there is something you want to do. But rather than go and do the exact thing that everyone else is doing, which we know through behavioral psychology that you know the herd mentality can be fatalistic uh financially fatalistic that you think about what can i do to fill this void that is more aligned with what my values are what my risk tolerance is what i can afford everyone's going to greece do you get on a plane and go to greece look if you've got the money bon voyage but i think like maybe what you're what you're feeling in that moment of fomo when you're seeing everyone doing the thing is like you're wanting the connection. You're wanting an adventure. You're wanting to go somewhere, but it doesn't have to be this, you know, global trip. Um, and then kind of figuring out what's going to be your roadmap to fulfilling that FOMO. I love that. It's it's really the opening the door to exploration about what's making you feel that way versus I got to do what everybody else is doing. Right. I got to drive that car, go to Greece, what have you. Great way of looking at it. Let's talk about fear of money because I think all of us experience that. And you really get into it by talking about your experience growing up and the bridge you had to build between your parents yes. over money. And I can totally relate to yeah. that, but I would love to know how that happened for you and how you sort of overcame came that and how that sort of set you down your path. My parents are Iranian immigrants and I'm very grateful in that in our home we talked about money a lot. 
but we talked about all the things. And it was sometimes discussed calmly and sometimes discussed with fists banging on laminate kitchen tables because my parents had a lot of friction in their lives around money. Mostly my father feeling as though it was his responsibility to be the sole provider and manage it. And my mother desperate to be more involved and also have her own financial independence. And so they fought a lot about how much they were going to spend on things, how much money my mother could have for groceries. I mean, every little thing and also the big things. Like my mom didn't know where to pay the mortgage if God forbid something had happened to my dad. And so this was an ongoing pattern in their relationship. I witnessed it. And it all kind of culminated when I was in college. Uh, At this point, my parents are still married. I can't figure that out, but they are. They have figured it out. But this aspect of their financial life is still kind of strained. And I'm home from college. It was like a spring break. And my mother turns to me in the kitchen with tears in her eyes. And she says, I need you to talk to your dad for me because he is just dead ending me. Like he's not allowing me to get access to our bank accounts and our investment portfolio. And I'm just like, I'm not, it wasn't for her coming from a place of not trusting him. It was just, she was trying to be, she was fearful of protecting her livelihood and her security. I got it. And this was, I don't know if anyone's out there like an independent, like an only child or the adult child, the older child, you tend to be like the communicator between your parents when they're arguing. I, I filled that role. My brother was born when I was 11. So up until that point, I was in between them a lot during their arguments and would channel messages back and forth, usually from my mother to my dad. And in this case, she was like, I would love for you to go talk to him about this because this is really keeping me up at night. And in that moment, I realized that my fear of money, it was stemming from this fear of my mother's not being able to be safe. And I felt like I got to go do this because love is actually greater than fear. And I mustered up the confidence to go up to my dad and explain to him, hey, I really think you should give mom the keys to the kingdom. I mean, like, come on, what's going on? Because I knew he raised me. He was a bit of a feminist dad with me, but with his with his partner, my mom, it was different. But with me, he was the one who encouraged me to open up the 401k, to invest, to ask for the raises. So I think coming from his daughter, this ask weighed really heavily and he heard it differently. And he did end up giving my mom those keys, which I feel very proud of, I guess, in that moment that I was able to be that conduit for them. But the fear of money, as you mentioned earlier, is different for everybody. And unlike a lot of the other fears I talk about in the book that are states of mind, like loneliness and rejection, money is just a tool. So when I say you're afraid of money, it's typically your relationship that has gotten you a little spooked. And so what is that relationship about? And so that story about my parents is sort of the unpacking of my own relationship with money. It's because of that foundation, seeing my parents argue about money, why today I'm extra vigilant about earning what I earn and and saving what I save and investing and also being a financial author and someone who teaches others about financial independence. Yeah, what happens to us as children really shapes us the rest of our life and our financial relationship uh, really shapes who we become. I'm super risk averse because there was a lot of financial uncertainty when I was growing up. And I love how you quote Christina Blacken in the book who says, money is a hammer. You say it's a tool. It is that hammer. We are afraid of what our relationship to the tool represents, not necessarily having it, but what does it mean? What does it mean who I am 
with and around money and my fears about money. So powerful. Such great stuff in that book. All right. Let's talk about net worth equaling self-worth. Hard to avoid that these days with Instagram uh, and all the other social channels and the snaps of it all because what we see is bling TV. We see bling video. We see people dripping with the latest outfit. We see people living their best life on vacation, at the wine tasting, whatever. <laughs> but that is not necessarily self-worth. That is a perception of worth. How right. how hard is it to break through that? It is hard, but I think that the opportunity for all of us, and we all experience this, is to, when you're fearing a sense of, I'm not enough, because I don't have quote unquote enough, that fear, it's really asking you a couple of things. One, get a little bit more educated. You know, you have been maybe focusing too narrowly on a slice of life. So get off Instagram and see the world. I think that can be such a teaching. Secondly, I think this fear is asking you to understand where it's coming from. Like sometimes when the fear of money shows up, the question you ask it is, where did you come from? Who brought you here? If you're feeling not enough because you don't have quote unquote enough, but you have savings, but you have had the steady job, but you've never gone bankrupt, like your life is a testament to why how you're feeling is not true. And sometimes when we fear money, it's not even about the money, right? It's about how our perceptions have been developed. Sometimes it helps to work with a professional to unpack some of these narratives that you've attached yourself to. And again, I do think it goes back to childhood and even maybe even more recent experiences that have really left an impact. Like if you are a young adult who experienced their parents losing their home in the Great Recession or losing other valuables in the Great Recession, like that no doubt is going to leave you in a place of, of feeling more scarce about money. And I get that, but it doesn't mean that that has to be your reality. And as adults, you know, this is the work. And sometimes these are the helpful reminders we need to recognize that what we see is perception, how we feel this fear may actually be a fallacy, but it's our job to get to the root of it and then rewrite that narrative as I talk about in the book. Yeah. And you also talk about that spending, that spending fear, overspending. And I, I love this prescriptive part of the work where you talk about assigning a viable and deeply personal plan to our money mm -hmm. so that every time we spend, it feels like it's going in the right direction. That is not saying, Farnoosh, don't get yourself that latte. Don't splurge no. on whatever. Yeah. It's saying, overall, am I putting things in the right place? Am I spending in the right places so that I'm ultimately headed in the right direction? Not what I had this morning as a little treat for myself. I love that. Talk, talk more about that. Sure. I, and I will say that when I first started in personal finance, it, the message was the opposite. It was a lot of um, using fear in the negative way, right? To say like, if you're going to buy the latte, you will never retire. And it was a lot of this sort of messaging around deprivation and shrinking and spending less. And then, you know, I think we turned a corner. I think it was because we realize that even if we do all those things, maybe we won't still have a 401k that's robust. Like there are other levers we need to pull, including how we earn and how we negotiate and how we invest, all of that. And also our upbringing impacts whether we start out in life with uh, on first base or, or third base in our financial life, right? Some people just start out in life a little bit further because they had you know, parents who educated them around money, who gave them savings, who helped them get through college. So that's for another podcast. But I think that I'm a big advocate, and I think a lot of people have really in the financial space have come around to this too. I'm not the only one, but we believe that your rich life starts with first defining what 
that means to you and not just the things that you have, but how you're spending your time. For me, richness is a calendar without any appointments except this podcast, right? An ability to come to New York and be spending time with you, to be able to have that optionality and choice. That is what financial freedom means to me, but I have to be able to afford that. And yeah, that means like going to getting a matcha latte for $8 or whatever once in a while, but I'm drinking that with a friend and maybe I'm doing that while I'm strolling down the streets of New York. And that to me, again, me is important and for me is worthwhile investment. And I think that everyone has permission to be able to design that for themselves. I love that. That is financial freedom, the ability to afford the life you want to live. And I I keep repeating this by the great Joe McClain, one of our favorite advisors on last week's podcast. How much does it cost to be you? How much does it cost to be the you you want to be? They're all part of the same recipe of becoming more comfortable with money and attaining that financial freedom that everyone talks about. It's not about a dollar amount. It's about living the life you want and being able to afford that. All right, you have so many great guests on the So Money Podcast. It is first class. You got over 1,500 episodes there. So hat tip to you. We're just (laughs) at about 150, 160 over here. Queen Latifah, one of my very favorite guests, not only on your show, but one of my favorite people in hip hop in general. What lessons did you learn from the queen when she joined the show? Queen was very candid. She talked about her, she talked about so many things about money, like her definition of wealth, her beginnings when she was a rising artist. And she had the unfortunate incident where she allowed an expert to manage her money, a financial advisor who probably came recommended, but he ended up mismanaging her money. And she went in one day and there was no more money left. And it was very, very difficult at the time, but you know, she's just such a wonderful human with like a very open mind. So she reflects on that moment and says, you know, thankfully it happened when I was young and I learned immediately the lesson, which is that yes, it's important to work with professionals, but you have to vet them. And more importantly, you have to stay involved. It's not where you just turn a blind eye, you know, you have to care, you have to be curious. And I think sometimes as women too, we feel as though maybe we don't have the seat at the table to ask those questions. We don't have permission to to do that. We are called nosy or we're getting in the way, like my mother with my dad, right? I think these cultural gender norms and I don't even call them norms, but these sort of like these fallacies, they play up in also our professional lives too. And we're working with professionals. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a meeting, you and your your spouse of the opposite sex, and the tax accountant or the financial professional is only making eye contact with the man or only sending emails to the man in the relationship. So this happens. It happens to even the greatest, even the smartest, you know, people like Queen Latifah. But I really appreciated that story, and it was a cautionary tale and a, an example of how when you fear a red flag, I've, I fired a CPA, and I'm glad I did it. I talk about that in the book, too. You have to be vigilant. You're, no one cares more about your money than you. That's what I learned from Queen Latifah. Right. It's always your responsibility, and she and she took it to heart. And that's what we have to do. Everybody says, oh, I got a guy or I got a gal who manages my money. Yeah, well, check in on them, yeah. too, because yeah. everybody needs to be checked in on. All right, you know Investopedia is a site built on our definitions and our financial terms. I got to know, what's Farnoosh Tarabi's favorite financial term? What's the one that just makes your heart sing? Well, I think it's ROI, as my father would say. Always get the ROI. Everything is about getting... Uh, And not that I live my life transactionally all the time, but I think it's a healthy approach to experiments and things that you're doing in your life that you're not really sure, but you're like, even if this fails, you know, what's a way for me to walk away from this experience, 
feeling like it was a win for me personally, because like, you know, people might know I was the editor at large at CNET for 20 months. They licensed my podcast. It was a really, as I say, like an interesting experiment. And while it didn't endure, I went in knowing, like I already had in my mind what I wanted to get out of the experience. I wanted to meet cool people. I wanted to grow the podcast. I wanted to build my newsletter. I wanted to also go back and know what it was like again to work on a team and connect with people and build something cool. And we did all of that. It didn't last forever, but that's okay. That's not a failure. That's just, you know, the time ran out and it actually opened the door to being able to invest more in my book and have more time to talk about a healthy state of panic. I talk about the fear of endings in the book and how we tend to not want things to end because we worry about regret and the sense of failure and the what ifs. But I think that it is our job to look at endings as potentially an opportunity to try something new and go in a new pathway. And when something closes and ends, there's so much to leverage from that still, like the opportunity ended or the thing ended, but what you learned, you take with you, the friendships you take with you, the experiences, the lessons, the losses you take with you, and that informs and fuels the next thing. So your question was about the term, and I went into all these stories, but ROI, and my Persian dad would always grill this into me because like, I went to Penn State and I could have chosen some other, you know, more expensive schools, but it was our in-state school. And he was like, ROI. He's like, I'm going to tell you every undergraduate school, at least the first two years, all the classes are the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was not wrong He's about like, that. He's like, just, I need to cash flow this out of my pocket, girl. Like just do the Penn State and then we'll talk about, you know, taking out loans for grad school if you want. But uh, I'm so glad for that. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine if I be a different story. Absolutely. But ROI applies to everything in life, not just your portfolio. We love that term and we love that that's your favorite term. Folks, it's a healthy state of panic. Follow your fears to build wealth, crush your career and win at life. It's Farnoosh Turabi's latest book. We will link to it in the show notes. Also to her So Money podcast, one of our favorite financial experts and a dear friend. Thanks so much for Thank joining you. the Express. Thank you, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term is brought to us by the long bond, the long duration U.S. Treasury. And that term is bear steepener. We mentioned it at the top of the show, and here's how we define it on Investopedia. A bear steepener is the widening of the yield curve caused by long-term interest rates increasing at a faster rate than short-term rates. A bear steepener is usually suggestive of rising inflationary expectations or a widespread rise in prices throughout the economy. The rise in inflation can lead to the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates to slow prices from rising too rapidly. Investors, in turn, sell their existing fixed-rate long-term bonds since those yields will be less attractive in a rising rate environment. The result is called a bear steepener because investors sell long-term bonds in favor of shorter maturities as they wait for rate hikes to finish before buying long-term bonds again. This time around, though, the bear steepener phenomenon may not be playing out because of an expectation for more rate hikes, but because rates are going to stay at these elevated levels for a while if you believe the Fed's summary of economic projections. Plus, the enormous amount of debt the U.S. has piled on since 2020 is making our long bonds less attractive 
to investors. The thing about bear steepenings, which are pretty rare, is that they tend to precede recessions, but not always. It happened from July of 2020 to March of 2021 as the government sent trillions of dollars to households and bought back its own bonds to make sure markets didn't freeze up. Still, this sudden spike in long-term bond yields caught a lot of people by surprise, and since a bear steepener is the rarest of breeds, what comes next is anyone's guess. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to our good friend Farnoosh Tarabi for climbing aboard the Express. Her new book, A Healthy State of Panic, is on bookshelves and online now, and it's a great read. I gave a copy to my 17-year-old, and she loved it too. We'll link to the book and all of Farnoosh's great work in the show notes, along with all the reports we cited on this week's episode. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.